Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Today I'm welcoming Matt Tometz back on the show. It's been a little while since I've talked with Matt, but it was great to catch up today. We covered all things relating to combine preparation. If you don't remember Matt, he is a strength and speed coach out at TC Boost, and he is one of my go-to guys when it comes to all things relating to speed. So we dive into detail about speed training and the combine preparation that he does with athletes over at TC Boost today. I think you're going to love this episode. Before we get to it, though, pull out your phone, go to Instagram, make sure you give Coach Big Toe, Matt Tometz, a follow and check out his own podcast, the Talking Shop Podcast as well. Enjoy. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. It's been too long since I've chatted with you. I'm excited to have you back here today. Yes, welcome back. Hello, Dr. Dr. Braun. I'm <laughs> um, just talking good stuff with good people. And uh, yeah, as we were talking about before, I, I, I always like making it kind of exclusive, you know, where it's like, oh, all this conversation before we hit record and whatnot, as uh, being a, a podcast listener, but also host myself, but being on the on the other side of the table. And this is round two. And uh, always, always enjoy seeing just the amount of stuff you put out and, and the super high quality. So to to get asked back, I must be doing something right. So we, we got a super good topic and uh, I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, definitely. I really appreciate you, your time. And uh, overall, you're just a wealth of knowledge and insight, Matt. And I think that's why you're one of the few individuals in the country who gets to work with some of the highest level athletes there are. Uh, you know, I've heard all about you and we've talked at length in the past, but for those who haven't heard of you or maybe they haven't heard of the Talking Shop podcast or TC Boost, would you mind kind of giving them a quick rundown of who you are and all the amazing things that you do? For sure. So uh, my, name is, <laughs> my name is Matt, obviously, and uh, I'm a sports performance coach and our sports science coordinator at TC Boost. And our thing is speed. And uh, I used to say we get athletes bigger, faster, stronger, but mainly faster. And I think I've changed that to like, we just help athletes get faster and everything else that goes into that. So yes, we lift. Yes, we do all of that stuff. But everything comes back to how do we get faster? And really wrapping my head around like that is what I do. And that is what we do has been huge for us and our selling points and framing my social media in talking about technology and as our sports science coordinator, you know, vetting and talking with all of these different like sales reps and stuff. So everything comes back to speed for us. And it's, it's super cool to think about where I, I stumbled in for an internship. Oh my gosh. I was, I was at the front desk. I uh, remember it like it was yesterday. Um, I stumbled into this place. Oh, how many years ago was that? 2016. And, uh, and now I'm like a, a speed coach and that's my thing. And I'm super into it. So super grateful for all that stuff. Uh, we're about 20 minutes north of Chicago. My boss has been doing this 20 plus years. I'm over three years full-time now and uh, NFL combine stuff is something that we've been doing for a while. My boss has some crazy, crazy stories from all of that stuff, but I have a few rounds under my belt myself, nothing too crazy, but it's a unique beast in and of itself. So I'm, I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I think that everyone watches the NFL combine and people might be familiar with some of the different tests like the 40 or the vertical or that sort of thing. But to look at the training that goes into preparing for that is a completely different thing because I'd imagine it's a little bit different than what you would consider like normal football training. So uh, just starting off here um, from the combine 
from the combine standpoint, I know, like we said, there's the 40, the vertical, a whole array of different tests there. How do you kind of like prep for each one or how do you kind of approach your training for each test individually? I'll say. So for, for context, before we, we get into specifics, so it's these athletes that want the best results in the least amount of time Yep. to like achieve their dreams. And that's not to their fault. That's just how it is of the schedules and everything like that. And I think you'd be very surprised at the low speed training age of these guys, you know, these power five mid-major college football players that like haven't done speed really ever beyond conditioning. So they want the best results in the least amount of time. And their like starting spot is like zero. So it's super super unique challenge and just that in and of itself. So, so that's just the, the, the concept of it, you know, 10 weeks, five days a week to like achieve their dreams or not. And then next is football's a circus. So you have so many different components with the skills and the plays and a play could turn from four seconds into 20 into all these different things to where the combine is a track meet. You know, what event you're doing, you know, when it's happening, you know, what you have to do and all of these things. So it's a different type of training for them. It's a different mindset and it's something that they're not used to. But like I said, we need like the best case results and you can't really afford to like miss any time because you only have basically like, let's just say 50 training sessions, right? Um, To do all of these super fast, unfamiliar movements and make them the best at it literally in the world, you know? Um, but we, we train for it concurrently. So our, our speed philosophy in general is a high, low model, um, concurrent training, linear concurrent training, because the simple works, right? So we do a little bit of everything every day, which is different amounts, depending on the focus of the day. And that's how you can hit everything, um, you know, two to three times over the course of like a five day cycle. Um, so, Day one is going to be more of a, a priming day, more acceleration focus. So a chance to touch on some of our top speed mechanics, um, a big acceleration block and some jumping, saving the the change of direction for kind of later in the week, because that's going to be the most challenging or taxing on the body. Um, and with acceleration being fast and kind of priming, but not that hard because it's not truly as fast as top speed and then top speed being the fastest, most challenging thing that the nervous system can do, kind of how we put those three buckets together. Um, So day one is more acceleration focused. Day two, Tuesday is going to be more top speed focused or a little bit longer excels. So getting in our our fly work, maybe a few longer starts and a little bit more chain of direction. So getting through uh, the pro shuttle and the L drill. Wednesday is going to be active recovery. And then we kind of reset that cycle for another Thursday, Friday, um, longer excels probably going to hit, um, you know, our, our 20 plus 30 plus, uh, full sprints. And then Friday is going to be almost all training direction, um, with some starts, maybe just within five, 10 yards. So we're doing start work every day because obviously that's the, the main component of the 40. Um, and the faster you are, you won't get to top speed in a 40. Um, so just really getting the, the guys so comfortable in their routine, because everything's a routine, right? It, it's it's a track meet. 
So just getting so comfortable, getting into, you know, flow state, if you will, of like going through your steps, getting on the ground, hand up, hips up, pause and go. Starts every day. Excel Monday, top speed Tuesday, long excels Thursday, and then more training direction on Friday. Still hitting a little bit of kind of everything else most days. Um, so you get two, if not three doses, if not five or four, I guess, because Wednesday's active recovery doses of what's important. So it's all about how taxing is it from a nervous system standpoint, how taxing is it from like a muscular standpoint, like all the eccentric breaking of the change of direction and stuff. Um, and then consequently, how important slash how needed is it? So like the starts, like we're doing start work every day, even if it's just five yards. So that's a little bit of context about wrapping your head around combine training and a little bit how kind of a, a week looks. Um, you mentioning the importance of the start training, but I can imagine, you know, that big moment when the spotlight's on you, if you have a bad start, all you know, there's not really any coming back from that. So that certainly makes sense from a prioritization standpoint. I kind of like how you, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it like a full periodization, but kind of like a mini periodization in the sense of there's a focus and an intent for every speed session. And it's not just a matter of going and doing, you know, X drill or Y drill every time it's specific skills are developed at specific times and there's progression over time. Mm -hmm. and, and even within Excel itself, we have more stride frequency days and more stride length days. Um, so day one is going to be a little bit more of a, uh, stride length day. Um, a little bit more kind of med ball throws kind of tying in our jumping and stuff. And then, um, the, the next day is going to be a little bit more of kind of stride frequency tying in with our top speed work is that's the, you know, most CNS taxing thing we can do. So all it is, is just aligning stresses, not only from a muscular standpoint, but also from a nervous system standpoint to, to give the athlete the best workout that day to also not take away from the next day, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine that's the kind of thing that often gets overlooked by a lot of coaches is I don't think many people understand the role of the nervous system as it relates to, you know, just general movement, let alone sprinting is, you know, if you have someone doing very taxing compound movements that require multiple uh, body systems to be involved simultaneously, it takes a toll, maybe not always on a muscular standpoint, like we said, maybe it's more of a nervous system load, but that's going to impact how quickly someone sprints, how quickly someone accelerates, or even just their overall mechanics and form while sprinting. People move different when they're fresh versus when they're fatigued. Um, so I think that paying attention to that detail is very essential as well. And that's one, like I said, I feel like it's often overlooked. Yeah. So just, we, we, we have to maximize every day. And if you, if you pull too much on one bucket, right, if you go crazy hard on the change of direction, then you're going to be crazy sore for the next day. Or if you hit your super high volume of fly work, well, you can still sprint the next day, but it's probably not going to be that fast. So it's almost like if you have everything on a, on a whiteboard and you just kind of drag it into like different days of the week, the, the four different days, um, knowing that Wednesday's active recovery knowing like, how is it going to affect the next day? Well, if we know we're going to take active recovery on Wednesday, well, then we can hit our, our CNS pretty hard on, on Tuesday, right? Or if we know we have Saturday, Sunday off, well, then we can go, we can dip a little bit more into the like muscular fatigue bucket and stuff like that. 
but then how does it also set us up? So day one from Altus kind of in the track world, day one is always like a priming day because you think, oh, I'm fresh. Well, it's like, yeah, your muscles are, but your service, your nervous system's a little bit asleep from the weekend. So that's why it's a little bit more jumping, a little bit more short start work to get the body feeling bouncy, but it's not going to really crush them, right? To set them up for a nice Tuesday, to then get a nice active recovery on Wednesday, to your longer excels because it's day three. So you're a little bit tired, um, but not as tired, relatively speaking, as you will be later to get your longer excels in. And you already checked off the top speed bucket twice with mechanics on Monday and flies on Tuesday. So our longer excels starting to put stuff together. And then Friday, the body's pretty, pretty beat up. You've been doing some of your rehearsal kind of walk through chain introduction stuff, but then you can turn up the intensity on, on day four. So Friday. Um, so it's, it's a pretty cool system. You know, it's, it's, it's easy for me to, to take credit, you know, 10 minutes into a podcast as my boss has been doing this like 25 years. Uh, but it, that that's our, our system and works pretty well for us. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, you, you mentioned about the jumping there as you were talking as well. How does the jumping relate to what you do on a speed standpoint? Are you training the jumps in speed sessions separate? Um, just kind of walk me through how jumps kind of fit into that. So jumps, whether it's combine stuff, whether it's our, our regular training, I think jump jumps do a great job of bridging the gap between the warm up and the workout as a super high intensity um, exercise to really get the body bouncy. But it's only, you know, one, two, three, three reps at a time if it's like a continuous hurdle jump or bra jump or something like that. So it's going to get the body firing, but it's not going to like smoke on like a 10, 15, 20 yard sprint. So that's typically where it fits in for us. So the body's fresh. It can get some super high output. It's also a good ready readiness number that's also not going to tax them. You know, although the most specific readiness we can get is a time sprint, it's also going to come with the most fatigue. So um, although for my numbers, the jump percent and the sprint percent doesn't line up, it's still just a really good kind of talking point way to like end that warm up slash start that workout plus start to check that box of can we hit what's important at least twice a week, if not three or four. Um, so kind of in between the the warm up and the workout. I like it. I like that approach. And it, it seems like I, I don't think you've used the term yet, but it seems like there's almost like a minimum effective dose to what you do. You mm -hmm. want to stimulate, but not push to the point of excessive fatigue or detriment, if that makes sense. Like it's a continuous build up to combine day and not as much of a roller coaster. Yeah. So, so there's, so, so that's just a week or a day in and of itself. Now there is there is some periodization and some peaking and tapering and, and stuff like that. And there's definitely like a, a newbie gains in the first three weeks. There's like that lull in the middle where guys are a little, little bit beat up, you know, numbers are kind of stale. And then the guys feel like a gazillion dollars come, you know, week nine when they start to deload going into week 10. Um, so there's definitely some periodization with stuff like that. And if we only saw a guy, because there's so many different situations, like we, we've had guys They'll be at like University of Iowa, just as an example, like a close-ish big school, like three, three and a half hours. They'll come in on like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, because they have like school during the week. And that program is going to be a lot different than guys that are in here five days a week versus we, we've had guys that have jobs, but they'll come in and train with our high school group, you know, in the 6 p.m. time slot. And then they'll get like 30 minutes with a coach 
just to go through a little bit more of the technical stuff kind of one-on-one that's only three days a week so that'll look a little different too so knowing your constraints of of um total weeks days per week you know just time per day and stuff like that as well as for example we had one guy go to the combine uh started like a week late because they played in the rose bowl i guess that gives one of two teams that they could have played for um so i started a week late went to like the senior all-star reese's thing like three weeks in so we had three weeks of training then he was gone for like a week and a half and then the combine is way earlier than pro days so every every college has a pro day where scouts can come to um and that's what a majority of the guys do that'll be like middle middle march uh i think northwestern as we get a lot of those guys that was like march 10 march 14 something like that uh, but the combine is like late february so this guy started a week late had three weeks of training took a week and a half off and then had like two three weeks before he had to leave again so that's what six total weeks with some breaks in between and we have to get you know the best case best case results but that's gonna look a lot different from guys who might not make it to a bowl game that haven't um you know played since the end of November that are just feeling really good and fresh versus guys that play into January as college football players. So there's so many things that go into it. But if you start with your 10 weeks and know, all right, well, week 10, we're performing. Week nine, we got a taper. Week eight, we got to really push it. And then how does each week set yourself up for the next week? And then how does each day set yourself up for the next day? Um, and that's how you put a, a super, super solid plan together. Yeah, kind of reverse engineering it. So mm-hmm. you know what the end goal is. You set the date of when that's going to be occurring. And then you kind of look at the timeline that you have in order to make it happen. And you build your steps along the way. And, you know, I know you mentioned a couple of times about tapering before the event, kind of like the calm before the storm, if you will. I'd imagine that's something that can be difficult to get people to kind of follow or believe in if they haven't like gone through some kinesiology or speed courses in the past is, you know, the concept of doing less right before your big performance kind of thing is something that I've noticed a lot of people don't quite fully grasp, at least in more of like the younger athletic world is it seems like we're obsessed with this concept of more is always better when sometimes doing a little bit less actually allows us to uh, achieve a better result, I would say. Yeah, I think you, you totally hit it on the head of it's so easy to lean back on at least I worked really hard, you know, that, that, that little doubt in the back of your mind of, did I do enough or I didn't do enough, you know, like what if it doesn't work out? Well, I could have done more. That's the the biggest challenge. We always have to battle with these guys as football is one of those sports where often training, lifting, stuff like that has gotten them to where they are versus something that might be a little bit more um, skill dominant, where like baseball, you know, like not all those guys have six packs, obviously. <laughs> um, so like just as a sport where training is a huge part of it, that's definitely one of the biggest challenges where it's like, guys, this is going to be like a 45 minute session. We're going to go through the the warm up that you're going to do on the pro day. We're going to hit, you know, three starts at five yards, a 10 yard sprint, a 20 yard sprint, and we'll do an 80% rep on your pro shuttle and L drill and then a 90% rep. And that's it. And then you get like 10 minutes of like feel good, you know, like sports specific drills, you know, where the linebackers are doing their thing and the O-line has their stuff and kind of after the the combine stuff, you have your, your skill stuff. And you have to like 
watch those guys and be on them and, and they'll try to sneak in an extra rep here or there or it'll be like all right guys like we got like two minutes left of your like you know position specific stuff and like literally like like put your arm around them and walk them off the field be like now nah, dude like you're good you know like the haze in the barn was like the the cliche of this combine group where it's like you've you've busted it for 10 weeks like the last thing you'd want to do is try to get a little bit more out of today and sabotage like a week from now but also they're super they're, they're they're super coachable so it's not to their fault that they're super into it and training is a part of their identity you know working super hard um but yeah it's, it's definitely it like guys guys will flip 180 in their results and their mindset just feeling really good so tapering is definitely one of the the most important parts yeah, definitely. And I think it comes back to understanding stimulus and adaptation at the end of the day is for the combine, I've never seen a combine test that assesses conditioning. It's not like mm -hmm. a five mile run or a 5k or anything like that. It's speed, it's power, it's explosiveness, it's strength. And, you know, as a result, we need to do really high powered or high performance things, but for a short period of time. So I would imagine with your speed sessions, you know, especially if you're doing one of your top end days for top speed, you're not achieving top speed for a very long time. You're probably not spending like two minutes there because most people can't get to that point and stay there for long. You know, it's probably mm -hmm. short micro doses at that level and a lot less of the endurance piece, I would say. Yeah, if, if we think about the slowest 40s, of the combine is, is going to be some of the alignment those guys are hitting like five twos weighing you know like 300 plus pounds being able to bench the house so most guys it's like a five second effort or less you know so although the aerobic base is always going to play a part in just being able to train and although you need an aerobic base for some of the position skill stuff have, have you seen any of those um kind of like sections of of the combine the, the position specific when they break I've out not, i've not personally no so so like with the with the the wide receivers for example they'll like run from sideline sideline to sideline and then they'll have to like catch a ball catch a ball kind of flipping them 180 for each side and then like dash up the field or the the running backs will have to like run through a little zigzag shuffle kind of through some some bags plus like a 20 yard sprint so that's just the combine when you have a a bunch of guys per position but it was so interesting seeing it this year at Northwestern as it was open to the public for the first time since COVID or I guess, yeah, I guess it was technically public, but we, we know those guys there and we have athletes there. So I guess we're not public, but basically it's like the old lineman dude, there was only like four of them. And this coach basically like on the, on the clock of the like scoreboard is like 10, 15, 15 minutes, I think. And basically you have, some like old football coach wearing his like NFL hat of whatever team he's on. And he's just leading these drills, drill after drill after drill, just O-line stuff. And everyone's just watching them, right? So there was one where the O-linemen were doing like pulls. So so they're like on the line, kind of come out and do like a curve run out into space, kind of pushing one of the other O-linemen who's holding a bag. And then you would finish your rep. You'd have to grab the bag and do it for the next guy. So you basically get, you have to like do this max effort run, pushing someone, grab the bag, max effort kind of backpedal while you're being pushed, not embarrass yourself falling over, jog back while the third guy or the fourth guy goes, and then you're doing it all over again. It's like that for like 15 minutes. So although 
the 40 and stuff like that is going to be relatively way more important. There is somewhat of a, a conditioning component to that part. Um, but yeah, it's definitely weird. Like wrapping, wrapping the guy's head around, like, we're going to make you like stand and we're going to talk about your film and we're going to time you on our watches, three minutes rest in between efforts, you know, and, and stuff like that. So like I said, going from a track meet or going from a circus to a track meet, you know, like even our, our athletes now, the ones that are good at like standing still are like the baseball players, bless their souls, as I I myself was a, a baseball guy and our track athletes and the ones that are so bad, super antsy, soccer, lacrosse, football, they're like always doing something, right? So just learning how to like literally do a different sport because it is track and field. They're basically doing like a, a decathlon of how, however many events there are, you know? Um, so definitely a, a good opportunity to teach, but also kind of reframe what training can be and is and consequently what's required of them. But definitely, like I said, very coachable, very motivated, um, good problems to have, but just wrapping their head around like what it actually looks like and how it's different from what they've been doing for five plus years at a super high level. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. That's, um, that's really awesome there. And I, I didn't quite fully understand the conditioning element that goes into the, some of the different positional considerations, as you just mentioned there, Matt. So it's gotta be a challenge to blend the mechanics and science of sprint with the, uh, demands of the sport specific and position specific, uh, testing as well. And I know you mentioned before, you're a speed guy. You coach the speed. You guys do that kind of stuff. You mentioned, too, that you kind of pull up film and you have all this technology for assessing people while they're sprinting. How often do you notice form deficits or mechanic deficits when sprinting? Is that something that can be corrected? Is it something that makes a difference? I've heard a lot of different takes on the mechanics and form side of sprinting. And I'd imagine, you know, at the high level, you need to do what works and you know maybe what works shaves you know a tenth of a second off a guy's time but that tenth of a second means the difference between second round and fifth round draft pick or something so where do you see the mechanics coming into the whole thing yeah so i, I think just in, in general you have to appreciate the different the different body types and consequently what kind of training that they're going to respond to the most and although I'm admittedly a total rookie on this topic, but the infrasternal angle, I think, does a, a decent job of kind of encapsulating that if, if you're familiar with that. Um, and I'm totally going to botch this. So look up infrasternal angle if you want to learn more. But basically, like the angle of, of kind of like your rib cage, if it's narrow or wide, and you can kind of just tell by someone's body, basically, are they like narrow hips, narrow kind of shoulders and stuff or wide, basically. And my understanding, which is probably wrong is uh, basically how well they kind of compress their guts to make pressure to like create output. So narrows, small tube of toothpaste, they can compress quick, um, don't need a lot of range of motion, more of like a shallow jumper, not a lot of like knee flexion, for example, versus the heavy guys or the, the wide guys like the heavy squats. They're going to get really good at like the super heavy resisted running because they can get low, long ground contacts, stuff like that which kind of makes sense, you know, like guys that are skinnier want to be bouncier and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, my, my boss is more of a, a force dominant guy, a lot of resistance, stuff like that. And there's athletes that like PR every single week, 
just because like their body type is like a little bit more of a mesomorph. Um, they like fighting through some resistance and stuff like that. That's probably not going to work for like a, a 5'11 DB that weighs like 70, 175, right? Who's just more bouncy, elastic and stuff like that. Not that it can't work, but it's not going to be as like optimal as um, a, like a mesomorph that's going to like like more force. So first, just appreciating that like there are different body types that are going to respond differently to training. Not that there is wrong, um, but better or worse. Um, so I guess to, to stop avoiding the question, um, we'll use like throwing as an example. It might be a little bit easier to visualize. So there's so many ways to throw a baseball, but there's things that all good throwers do well, right? They're all going to have good hip shoulder separation. They're all going to have good rotational velocities. They're all going to have a strong lead leg block on their front leg. But like you can't try to put everyone in, in the same box. So running is kind of the same way. Like there's there's things that, all good sprinters do well, right? They're going to have a, a foot strike on the ball of their foot right underneath their hips at top speed. They're going to get their knee up to about like 80-ish degrees. Um, they're probably going to minimize backside mechanics. But then you have guys like Michael Johnson who basically made a living on on butt kicking and having the biggest butt and hamstrings in the world, you know? So, I mean, you can say that he's wrong, but he's fast and he has some hardware to prove it, you know? So also appreciating that like there's all of these things that we're working towards. You can say an ideal technical model, but consequently, like, is it realistic for, for me to ask a guy who, you know, big D lineman, 300 pounds to like really get his knees all the way up? Probably not. Right now, if I was training him for like a 12 week off season to be a better athlete, not just a better combine performer, that might be a little bit different. Um, so it's, it's, what's the truth? Like where, where can we move the needle? Where can we get easy gains and where can you kind of try to work on those weaknesses in the first half, first two thirds, but then also you got to lean into their strengths, you know? Um, so some guys, they, they get those newbie gains, they stale out and then they, they taper and peak and pop off. And some guys, literally it's a linear 10 weeks and it feels amazing. And that's where, I guess going back when I referenced my boss doing this for so many years, having all the stories, that's where you get the buy-in and that's where you get um, some of those moments of doubt. That's where you kind of uh, relinquish those when you can talk through, Hey, three years ago, I had another DB, just like yourself, you know, um, super fast and bouncy, same vertical as you, you know, after week two, he didn't hit a better number. And then he peaked and tapered and dropped, you know, a whole 0.15 seconds on his, on his 40. So being able to keep that in your back pocket of like, I've seen this before, I've done this before. Not that you're not special, but like, it's gonna it's gonna be okay. Just like trust the plan um, is always valuable as well. So I touched on a few different things, um, but mechanics are important. What's the truth? What do all good sprinters do well? But consequently, what realistically can I ask of them based on their body type and whatnot? And consequently also my time frame. Yeah, there are a lot of, great considerations and great points that you made there, Matt. And I want to take one and run with it for a second. You mentioned about the importance of just overall experience, which as you mentioned, you interned there back in 2016, which was seven years ago. So I definitely oh, man, think getting, getting in there early helps and getting some of those other stories and experiences, even if you're not leading everything, just being involved, having things that you can relate to. Um, and two, you also mentioned the importance of sticking to a plan. 
And uh, I, I find that's something that people struggle to do a lot is, you know, they get going on a direction and they hit a little turmoil or something starts to take a turn that they didn't expect. And they completely pull a 180 and go a different direction instead of sticking it out. And I think a lot of art and coaching, especially in the speed world, is knowing when to turn that 180 versus when to keep going. Because probably nine times out of 10, you're okay to keep going. But what about that one time out of 10 where things really aren't going the path that you want and you need to kind of redirect it? And that's something I feel like you can't really learn without experience like there's not really like a textbook guide if x do y when it comes to speed training and adjusting your program based on someone's response whether that be acute response or more of like a long-term response i'd imagine yeah it's definitely tough when results and numbers are going to drive a lot of your decision making but also like if we just take the nfl combine kind of logo off the program what other program would you expect to like judge off of only 10 weeks? You know? So it's, it's a super weird, like, do we abandon ship? Do we keep going? Um, is it just, are we a one deload week away from just all these questions and doubts going away? So you can't really mess with too much as like really what other program would we be saying like, Oh, 10 weeks that worked or, or not if it worked or it didn't, but like, you, you can't run three three-week programs and expect super good results, you know? So just just how there's no, um, or there there's a, a ideal technical model. There's, you know, a standard stock program that my boss writes every year, and then we kind of tweak and modify from there. But if every guy just did that, it's probably going to do pretty well for him. Not as perfect as if we changed... Um, you know, maybe like the last 10% of it, but um, there's going to be, you know, regardless of your infrastructural angle, the idea totally, totally messed up, but um, everyone's going to do resistance sprinting, right? Everyone's going to do some sort of top speed work. Everyone's going to hit their mechanics work on their um, pro shuttle and L drill and stuff like that. It's just different, different knobs that you turn up or down kind of depending on the guy. So even with, is this plan good or bad? It's more like, should we just turn this one thing up a little bit more? Should we turn this one thing down a little bit more? But like, everyone's going to do everything regardless, you know? But I think changing your expectations of like, if you have a narrow skinny DB, they're never going to pop off the same power numbers on our, our heavy resisted runs as like our, our D lineman, right? The perfect combo of like explosiveness, but also just body mass. So it's also like, as a coach, like, I'm probably not going to get him super riled up and coach the crap out of his heavy running and put all of my stock into his like output on the, the 1080 sprint on his 50% V deck. Right. Versus those big guys are probably going to eat it up. It feels good to them. It's their strength. It's probably going to teach them to drive out a little bit better as big guys. It's kind of hard to, to get their limbs moving fast. Um, versus like, I'm going to hype the crap out of these guys fly tents because they're good at top speed. They want to be upright and bouncy and just run fast. So it's understanding expectations for yourself as a coach, but also you can communicate that to the athletes. Because these guys, like I said, they're, they're, they're coachable. They've been screamed at since they were 10 years old playing football, you know? Not that we scream, but they're they're super eager and coachable, and they want it. 
And when you have those stories and anecdotes, as well as just like sound reasoning, as well as being able to explain like, no, because of your body type, because of how you've responded and what you've told me and how you felt, we're going to do this different. You know, we had 10 guys and we had three to four full-time coaches plus an intern, you know, where most places it's like one full-time guy and like three and two interns, three interns for like 15 plus guys. So our coach athlete ratio is pretty solid being at just one private facility versus something more like a chain. Um, but I keep kind of bouncing all over the place. There, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but I think we started on, on mechanics, but same thing with the training, training program. Like, like you can write your stock program, which is how it always goes. And then you go from there, you write your stock program and that's going to be good for like 80, 90% of the guys. Right. But how do you get those little changes? How do you just change some of the knobs, just turning it down a little bit more up a little bit more. Um, and, uh, that's how you, you do good stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The secret to doing good. I like it. Um, you know, and it, it's one of those things, it's very easy to cover a lot of different factors when you're talking about this, because there's so many different factors that go into combine day performance and sprint and all of the other things leading up to it. And one of the things that we haven't touched on yet that I feel like you've kind of alluded to is just the overall training environment and atmosphere. Like you mentioned, having access to good quality coaches in a small ratio, but also the type of environment you offer that athlete, because there's a lot of good coaches out there who don't offer the right environment. So how you communicate with the athlete, how you cue the athlete or don't cue the athlete. And that again, goes back to the art of coaching and the art of coaching speed, which comes with a lot of experience and repetition, but setting up the proper environment and the proper learning, um, I'll say the proper like groundwork that you need to learn effectively and learn efficiently because speed, while it can be trained, there's also a skill component to it. There's a skill component to the mechanics. There's a repetition component to getting the mechanics a certain way. Um, and if you don't have the right environment for that, that all kind of crumbles and fades away to nothing. And that's a spot that I know we've talked about in the past is, you know, when to cue versus not to cue internal versus external, uh, external cueing and that sort of thing. And, you know, having all of that down as best as you can is certainly essential. And even more on a testing side, because I know you and I have talked in the past and, you know, you've sent me some great resources and Excel files for VDEC resisted sprint calculations. Um, I know you're a big flying 10 guy, and I think you want all of your athletes to be running a less than one second flying 10, if I remember correctly. Um, So just kind of looking at all of those different pieces to the puzzle and being able to synthesize them in a effective way that your athlete can understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, but also what it means, because sometimes the number might not be better than the last week or the last time you ran it, but that's not always a bad thing. Um, I had that talk with someone earlier this week who was disappointed that, you know, his quad strength only went up by 12 pounds in a month. But if you looked at where it was a month ago versus where it was today, it's like that 12 pounds is actually a world of difference, you know, Um, to move it from 147 pounds to 159 pounds in isolated quad strength. That's huge. Same thing from a, you know, sprint standpoint, maybe someone's flying 10 only improves two hundredths of a second, but if they're already at like a 0.93 going Mm -hmm. to a 0.91 is kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think you, you hit it on the head of 
the art of coaching. And I've alluded in a few different examples about, you know, on, on paper is fine, but what is their, their expectations, their headspace? How do we talk to the guys about it? What's their understanding of what's going on? Because that's how you really get buy-in. You know, when, when guys are, are not trusting the plan, as this has happened a few times where they're like on Instagram and then they see this thing and they're thinking about like pawing the ground. And then one guy pulled his hamstring like four or five, six years ago. Um, and then guys on their active recovery day feel like they're not doing enough on a Wednesday. And then they go do like two hours of skill work and conditioning. And then they like tweak something on Thursday. Right. So it's truly getting buy-in as that's kind of like a, a buzzword these days. But getting them bought in on like, no, no, there's a reason why this day is easy and that day is hard and we're doing this like this and that like that. But how to work within a coaching staff, I think is is huge. And it was about this time last year, August, that we started talking about the combine stuff in January. And not only the logistics of you have the nutritionist, the physical therapist, we got to fix certain things in the facility. You know, like I'm always trying to get more tech for us. I'm hitting up all these reps of different things we want to experiment with, but also like understanding where you fit in. And it's super interesting kind of in the role I'm in where it's like, I've, I've been here long enough to where if my boss is out or if whatever, I can, I can take over and do a good job, but obviously I don't have 20, whatever years. So chatting with everyone, having multiple conversations and discussions about where do you fit in? What is your job? What should you do? What should you not do? Where my boss is like the overall and he he has the the final say, you know, his his eye and cueing and stuff like that. That's what goes not like in a dictatorial way, but more like a, we need one consistent message for these guys. So kind of how it goes is like he can't watch everything, right? He's going to give a little bit more time to, you know, maybe the guy going to the combine, right? But we're all going to watch everyone. And as they're walking back, because it's a very chill kind of pace and environment. And the lifting might get a little rowdy, but the speed is definitely a little bit more like track. You know, like those guys aren't screaming and pounding their chest and getting all amped up and doing velo slaps like my baseball guys, if, if you know what a velo slap is. Um, but as the guys walk walking back, I'll, I'll ask my boss. I'm like, hey, I, I saw this. What do you think? So, oh, I saw that too, but we're working on this. So that's fine. Or we could cue that you're not wrong, but this is going to be a little bit more effective, efficient. This is going to fix this. And let's see if it fixes that without even having to say it. So, so understanding how that art of coaching works. And when, when the guy goes up to me and he asks for more feedback because he didn't get as much as he wanted from, from my, my boss, I know to literally just be like, Nope. Uh, he said that I totally agree. I think you're doing great. And like, that is coaching right even though it might just be like playing the the oh innocent card just listen to the head guy like no there was a reason i said that there's a reason i didn't say that you know um so that just starts with like staff meetings starting now you know august to january five six months um so yeah the, the art of coaching is, is spot on because you want that one central message you want all of the guys focus and effort and intent not that there's a right or wrong but what is the best way to do it? And odds are the guy who's been doing it the longest with the most results probably has a pretty good idea of what, what that's going to be. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, uh, we don't always have to reinvent the wheel. I know that the cool stuff on Instagram, um, you know, is the, the eye candy, you know, 
extra sexy social media stuff, whatever you want to call it. Like that's the stuff a lot of people keep gravitating towards, but unfortunately not all of that stuff works. Um, I just made a post about it in a slightly different context here recently where, you know, in the PT world, we see guys doing these super elaborate, fancy, crazy setups when they can't even master the basic things. And the same is true in the sprinting world as well, right? Like if you can't even do the simple things in the sprint world, don't get all fancy and cute with some of the different drills. Same thing with the uh, queuing, like you just mentioned, you know, if that's what he gave, that's what we're rolling with. We don't always have to, you know, over cue or give this and that. And the other thing, like there's a point where it just all becomes so diluted that we lose what we're after in the first place. And that's what we have to be careful of is give what we need to stimulate, but don't overstimulate. And it's, mm. it's very easy to get caught in that trap and overstimulate. Um, but I, I think, like you said, you know, the balancing piece is certainly huge and certainly essential for us. Matt, as we start to wrap up here, I know we've discussed a variety of different things today relating to uh, combine prep and speed work and that sort of thing. Is there any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything else you want to share that we didn't quite discuss today? Combine, it's it's a it's a beast. It's a grind. It it, it makes for long days, but the, the basics work, you know, as, as you just alluded to about kind of social media and stuff, it's the basics with savage ex execution, really good implementation of the right cues, the right turning of knobs and stuff. And although that might sound kind of vague, and this is something that probably year three has taught me the most, as I had a CFL guy for five months, is like, it's not as fancy as like you think. And, and that was a, a big mental thing for me of like, Oh, these pro guys, high level, all of this stuff where like they need crazy and fancy and they're going to get bored and whatnot. And it's like, we have a guy who's been training here for 12 plus years, been in pro football for six. Um, and we do like stuff. He's been doing some similar stuff for 10 plus years, right? Run it. You pick one foot up, you go into hip flexion and then hip extension, knee flexion, knee extension, over and over and over again, your body angle changes as you rise, top speed. Like, you can't reinvent the wheel. So combine is a super unique challenge and beast. It, it challenges not only your efficiency and effectiveness. And, you know, although these guys do have all day, well, your body can't do all day of training five days a week for 10 weeks, right? So how do you, how do you get super specific and pre precise with your different knobs of things? But then also, like, you gotta you gotta peak at the right time. Um, you gotta get by from the beginning. You guys have to trust you so they're not doing more stuff on their own than they shouldn't be. So um, I think we did a, a pretty, pretty thorough kind of chat and discussion. Super good questions. We we touched on the X's and O's. We talked about one week in and of itself, all the 10 weeks about the art of coaching, which I think is super interesting. Definitely different challenge that one might not think of. Um, when I'm just playing the oh, like. Like we, we had a guy who was intentionally like a coach who was like the vibe guy. Like we have our, our main head coach, my boss, we have, um, you know, someone like myself with like a, a little bit more experience. And then we have someone who's like, literally just, if there's 10 guys and they're just going one at a time, just keep them out of their head. And that's ju just as valuable as anything else. Right. So a lot goes into it. Um, it's, it's easy to critique on TV. Um, but for example, the, the guy that went to the combine, he had some other things that 
that were, were challenges throughout the, the six plus weeks. He technically was one of the worst performers, but he and his agent were super ecstatic because if you saw him day one, week one, and if you said those are his final numbers, you'd say that was amazing. So there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, I pique some people's interest in, and they learn some stuff today. Yeah, definitely. And not only are you piquing people's interest, hopefully, but I think you offer a lot of great resources and knowledge in this space, more than I can offer myself. So for people who want to find out more about you, Talking Shop Podcast, all the amazing things that you post in the world of strength and speed development, where can they find you at, Matt? Fantastic. So I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Coach Big Toe. So Coach B-I-G-T-O-E. I guess every time I say it out loud, I, I, I always laugh, but... Yeah, if you want the origin story, we talked about that in our last podcast together, I think, Matt. Yeah, so it's just a play on my last name, Tomets. <laughs> so my dad was called every version of Toe growing up. And um, if you see the license plate, Big Toe, zooming past you on the highway, it's definitely not me. <laughs> um, but my brother is uh, Lil Toe, L-I-L Toe, and my mom is Mrs. and my dad's Mr. Toe and the Toe family. But just Tomets is my last name. So that's where, where my, my social media is at. I got some longer form content on the Talking Shop podcast. That's all about the stories, lessons, and experiences of coaches and just people in sports performance, a little bit less X's and O's and more kind of their journey and stuff like that. Um, and then I got some longer form, more X's and O's stuff on my YouTube um, as I'm as I'm trying to grow that and get monetized. And man, that's a long process. Um, but th those are, are my main main platforms. Awesome. You know, I, I got to say, I think it's called X now, not Twitter, if I remember. Oh, geez. Yeah, man. We'll, we'll have to edit. We'll have to edit that. Um, you know, you just like I, I still call uh, the, the White Sox Park the cell, even though it's what, <laughs> guaranteed rate field. It's still Miller Park. You know, it's the Sears Tower, not Willis Tower. I'm just an old boomer now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you're the same age as me, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> back in my day, it was Twitter. <laughs> yeah, back in the day. Um, I, I also got a pick on you. You haven't joined my kick to bring MySpace back in 2023 yet, Matt. I'd expect to see you there, of all people. Oh, man, I'm, I'm just trying to bring back Vine. That, that's <laughs> the where the, the, the real memories were at, for sure. The original. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the amount of Vine, like, inside jokes I still make with people. and Oh, so uh, many references. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Road I'm sure work ahead. I, I hope it does. <laughs> for sure. Um, Matt, really appreciate uh, your time. It was great catching up and talking about all things relating to Combine prep today. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to the next one. Hey everyone, I want to take a second and tell you all about AliRx. AliRx is a at-home food sensitivity and gut health testing panel. You order online and then receive and complete your test at home for food sensitivities. You then receive a custom report online through your member portal and then receive personalized recipes and supplements that are catered to you based on your food sensitivities. If this is something that interests you, you can check out the link and description in my bio and you can use the coupon code capital D, capital B, R-A-U-N, capital R-X, so D-Braun R-X, at checkout to save yourself 20%. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Braun Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you've liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. 
This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.